Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to work our way around the body head to toe, exploring different body parts and organs and their history in a cultural, medical, social sense. We're going to hear from a historian or curator about their work studying these body parts and their history. And we'll finish up each episode by exploring some of the recipes that were developed in history to treat that part of the body. Welcome to the Case Notes podcast. My name is Daisy Cunningham and I am the college's heritage manager. And I'm Olivia Howarth and I am a volunteer with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Heritage. We are moving around the body and today we have made it as far as the teeth. So any initial opening thoughts, Olivia, on the teeth? I wish I had whiter teeth. I wish they were those Hollywood spiles with the little like ding sparkle, but um, they're not. Is that quite a modern thing, having white teeth? It's the idea of teeth being attractive. I suppose it depends what you mean by modern. It's probably 1700s. There's a lot of things that happen in the 1700s in in the Georgian period. There's a real rise of consumerism. There's a real rise of the middle classes. So before then, the actual amount of people that you could really classify as middle class was pretty tiny. It was mostly working class and upper class. And as consumerism increases, as, you know, empire access to goods increases, you get this rise of people with disposable income. Mm. Um, so that pushes a lot of things in terms of buying. But there's also at the same time, because of colonialism, because of this increased connection, there's people eating a lot more sugar and a lot more chocolate and drinking a lot more coffee. So more tooth problems and also more people who want to have aesthetically pleasing teeth. Well, I don't know when it was, but there's the idea that um, if a woman got married, her wedding present would be to have all of her teeth removed to avoid having terrible teeth in the future. For a long time, if you're talking about people treating teeth, unless you're talking about sort of home remedies where you're just rubbing things on your gums, if you're talking about paying someone money to treat your teeth, you're probably getting them to pull teeth out. Mm. That's that's what you're expecting, is a tooth puller. The other thing that's happening at the same time as all of this is the arrival and the growth of syphilis. Um, and syphilis is a pretty major player in the teeth problem area both because of the syphilis itself and also the mercury that's used to treat syphilis, teeth literally rotting away, gums and the palate rotting away. And did false teeth come in? Um, I think the first sort of examples of it are in the 1600s, but it's not common. So people have found examples of individual sort of false teeth being used but it wasn't particularly normal. It's really in the 1700s that it becomes something that sort of, again, you know, consumerism, these things are, are being made and kind of done on a sort of a different scale. And it's what was used to do it that also shifts. So for quite a long time, if you're talking about false teeth, you're talking about actual human teeth, just mm. um, just not your own teeth. And there's a different, there's sort of two different sort of sides to this, one of which is, you know, getting a human tooth and sort of, I don't know, making some sort of a palate, you know, making something that sort of holds it in place. But it's the tooth transplants 
that are a real rage for uh, you know a lot of the the late 1700s early 1800s the idea that you can literally get someone else's teeth implanted into your mouth it doesn't work <laughs> i mean it goes can work for a brief amount of time but i think pretty much always you know the the body rejects the tooth you can't just sort of stick it in and it becomes part of your jaw in the sense that they thought of it with the level of surgery they had at that time. One of the, the sort of caricatures, and, uh, and it does seem that it did happen, but possibly not as often as it's painted to be, is that rich people would pay a poor person to have all of their teeth removed and instantly then transplant them in. And I think the, the, obviously the logic advantage to that would be that it was the right tooth, you know, the, the bottom left molar or what have you. And that they were fresh. Um, it sounds like something incredibly nightmarish to be kind of taking advantage of poor people in that way. But it probably didn't happen nearly as often as sort of some of the kind of caricatures suggest. It was a fear that people had that rich people were going to steal your teeth. It's hard to know how often it actually happened. I wonder if, if there is a parallel here. One of the things that I found out was that the um, myth around the tooth fairy is likely um from <laughs> from the fact that Norse Norsemen, the theory is that um teeth, ch- particularly children's teeth, were lucky to take into battle. And so soldiers might have paid children to give them their teeth so that they could take them into battle, which is amazing. <laughs> but they they also have like other other things around teeth. So um the two goats that pull the chariot for the Norse god Thor in mythology. They're called, forgive my pronunciation, Tangrisnir and Tangnostra, and it means teeth grinder and one that has a gap in their teeth. So teeth is clearly like quite a strong symbol. And they've also found um, the remains of Vikings having horizontal grooves filed into their front teeth. And there's been sort of roughly like 130 different examples of that happening, largely in Sweden, but they don't know why they would file their teeth. There's some theories about it perhaps was an initiation rite, or maybe they filled those grooves with some combination of coloured fat or like charcoal to signify something. But that sounds ridiculously painful. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it does, it does. But you know, and it's 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 incredibly difficult to, to know with these things. And then you end up doing a lot of not you, but one ends up doing a lot of sort of extrapolation. And I think it's 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 bad enough with, with Vikings, but it, we still feel a bit the same, I think, in the seventeen hundreds that that we're still sort of trying to figure out how much this was stuff was happening in reality. Um so late seventeen hundreds you start getting porcelain teeth. So they start sort of going, well, actually maybe fake teeth are going to last longer and look better than someone else's tooth. And perhaps the tooth of a poor person actually, you know, might not be in the best nick or be the right colour or whatever. So you can now manufacture ones for the colour that you want. Apparently porcelain teeth were awful because every time you closed your mouth or every time you ate, they sort of rubbed together and made this sort of scratching noise. Like fingernails on a chalkboard. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so then they start using things like uh, tusks 
ivory. And, you know, if you're particularly fancy, you can start getting kind of mother of pearl or silver or gold or things like that. Um, so it becomes increasingly sort of about carving or creating the tooth that you want. Um, ivory were considered quite refined, but they also apparently decay very quickly, quicker than, than normal human teeth. So um, there's also things about the shape of teeth. So particularly that gap tooth smile, where people have a gap between their two front teeth. In the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer writes about the gap tooth wife of Bath, um, because in that period of the Middle Ages, a gap between your teeth, particularly in women, was supposed to represent lustful characteristics um in france it's called bad pronunciation again dent de bonheur which is like lucky teeth because uh well the only explanation i could find was that it might relate to a period where the napoleonic army was being recruited and soldiers needed to have good um incisors so that they could open like the paper cartridges for their muskets so if you had far apart teeth you were classified as unfit to fight and that might be considered lucky i did not know that (laughs) when you were talking about the gap in the front teeth being a sign of women's lustfulness and i just feel like as we work around the body almost every body part is associated with women fear of women being lustful or sexual or or free in some way We've had that with skin. We've had it with ears. We've had it with every body part. And just we're we're still on the head. Yeah, it's gonna. I, I think it can only get worse. <laughs> oh, it absolutely. As we work our way down the body, it's absolutely gonna get worse. But it's it's fascinating, but also exhausting that when you spend a lot of time looking at every different body part in the way that we're doing, after a while, you just go, God, they're afraid of women. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing that I had was about exploding teeth. Ooh. So it seemed to crop up in, I think there was a book that spoke about different unusual medical cases. And one of them was about the mystery of exploding teeth. In 19th century Pennsylvania, there was a dentist who wrote about patients who had experienced exploding teeth, three of them. So it wasn't like a one-off The first person was a reverend who had been kind of delirious with toothache and then had a sharp crack, like a pistol shot, bursting his tooth to fragments, um, and then he was fine. Instant relief. There's several theories about why their teeth would have exploded, one of which is just that they are slightly exaggerating. But the most prevalent one at the minute is that the type of filling they might have used at the time being a different combination of metals might have created a um what do they call it electrochemical cell trapping any remains of cavity inside the tooth building up hydrogen gas which then eventually exploded so that's quite interesting. <laughs> it is quite interesting. And so as you say, there's kind of the, the, the sort of two main options. There's, there's the something going on with the filling or there's the, this is just massively exaggerated. Is, mm-hmm. is, is there any indication of like which way historians are going? Do you think it, it's <clears throat> more likely to be the scientific option or the exaggeration option? I think the exaggeration option, largely because there was no evidence that these people had fillings. Oh, that's, well, that's the thing. With, without sufficient evidence, you know, it's, it's probably always going to be a mystery because if, if the data isn't there, we can't know. 
but I, I was interested because it's around the same sort of time you were saying 1850s where there was this real fascination with the idea of spontaneous combustion and people genuinely thought that somebody could just combust, could just burst into flames, could just, you know, explode, die, whatever. And so there have been a few medical people of various sorts writing about sort of cases they'd heard about or cases they'd seen. And it feels like it's a combination of, you know, sort of a game of telephone where somebody tells something on something and it all gets sort of mixed up. And also, I think there is there's a lot of medical practitioners who are really trying to get noticed, really trying to get, you know, and the best way to do it is to have the case. You know, you want the case mm. that's going to get the press, that's then going to make your name. And I think, obviously, the cases you're talking about are in America, but certainly in Britain, there's there's quite a different feel to medicine pre-NHS. You know, when people are vying for private customers, it's all about what have you published, who do you know, you know, and, and I just kind of wonder if some of these sort of crazy spontaneous combustion cases are just about getting attention. And um, also people still believe that you could spontaneously combust. Things could just explode. For our case study today, we're going to look at the history of tooth cleaning. Now, it seems to be a fact that if you look at the history of anything medical, then 99% of the time you can trace it back to ancient Egypt. This is because of two things. Firstly, ancient Egypt made many impressive advances. And two, if you define something loosely enough, then almost anything can fit the bill. So any article which defines toothpaste to include a powder made of ox hooves, eggshells and myrrh will conclude that toothpaste was invented by the Egyptians. This type of tooth powder was also used in ancient Greece and Rome, where crushed bones, crushed coal, tree bark and oyster shells were added to the mix. These tooth powders cleaned by being abrasive, by literally scraping the dirt from the teeth. The powder was usually applied to the teeth with a rag. In around 500 BCE, tooth powder or tooth cream was also in use in China. This version included adding flavouring to make it more palatable and to freshen the breath including ginseng and mint. In China, an early form of toothbrush, a chew stick, was used to apply the powder rather than a rag. Sometimes other items, such as feathers, were also used. Tooth cleansing technology remained static for a pretty long time. Recipes for toothpaste did include trials of some new ingredients, including scrubbing your teeth with toast crumbs, rock salt, crushed china or pottery, and using pulverised brick or charcoal as ingredients. Again, there were a lot of abrasive ingredients which could do real damage to the teeth. One other common recipe was comprised of a mixture of honey, salt and flour. But the first major changes didn't take place until the 1800s. Until then, tooth cleansers came in the form of a powder, usually in a jar, which only became a paste when mixed with water. In the early 1800s, tooth powder began to be sold pre-mixed into a paste and ready to use. In the 1890s, an American, Dr. Washington Sheffield, manufactured the first collapsible toothpaste tube, made of lead, which replaced the pots previously used. Fluoride was introduced into toothpaste in the early 1900s, and, during World War II, a metal shortage, combined with increased knowledge of the risk of lead poisoning, led to the development of plastic tubes. In this short excerpt, 
Professor Glenn O'Hara explores the changing diet in a post-World War II Britain and what this meant for people's teeth. Now to turn to fluoride in the drinking water, fluoride in the drinking water is the product or the uh, a phenomenon based in a peculiar particular public health crisis as perceived in uh, Whitehall and in Edinburgh uh, to a lesser extent actually in Belfast and, and latterly Cardiff after the creation of the Welsh office in 64. It's the creation of a crisis of, in shorthand, a big wave of sugar hitting children's physiological systems and in particular hitting their teeth. Now, it's not just sugar that creates a big crisis of dental caries, uh, basically uh, big holes in children's teeth uh, from the Latin for, uh, for decay in, in children's teeth that's doing this. It's also uh, a big increase in the amount of carbohydrates uh, and especially uh, white bread in the diet, but it's mainly to do with increased sugar. Not just increased sugar in sweets, although that's the trope. I'll come back to that in a minute. That's the kind of image of it in the public's mind. But also a great deal of increased sugar in, for instance, ironically, the free uh, orange juice given to children or in fruit juices in particular because they're from concentrate. They're not from press. So you concentrate a huge amount of sugar as well as you concentrate a huge amount of vitamin C. The emphasis on the vitamin C, only latterly does the increase in the sugar intake uh, be seen as problematical. And as we see there, there's a drop in the number of children with without any holes in them, without any decay, from 22% to 13% in just 10 years, 1948 to 1958. But what this is also is a great moral fear and a great familial fear about the conditions of restraint under superabundance. How do you restrain yourself from, for instance, in my case, kind of eating the whole Easter egg in one go. How do you restrain yourself when all the Easter eggs this week only cost a pound in the co-op? How do you restrain yourself uh, when a can of Coca-Cola is, uh, in this period, uh, in the 1950s, really, really cheap? Tiny amount of the household budget. When in the 1930s, even basic foodstuffs are a much larger part of the household budget. That's an extremely worrying element of governor's thoughts in the 1950s. And of course, that, that, that moves across into all kinds of worries. How should young people behave? Or is it worrying that they're going to coffee bars and meeting people from the opposite sex? What will the effect of more widespread contraception be? How will people control themselves? What will the effect of huge amounts more meat in the diet be? Etc, etc, etc. So how do we control ourselves? One way is uh, through propaganda and, and education. Education is one way which the British state thinks the people's, the people's difficulty with um, restraint under superabundance will be controlled. Another way will be to scientifically intervene in people's diets and scientifically intervene in people's lives in order to, in fact, help them. And we can see these kind of ideas from the promise of atomic power in the 1950s, which holds out the promise of enormously cheap and plentiful energy. Of course, we know the story doesn't really end like that. All the way through to intervening in what comes out of the domestic water tap. And again, although there is a great deal of legitimate controversy about the effects of fluoride in the water, it does not seem to be controversial that it does reduce the number of tooth decay damages to the teeth in the mouth among the children.
Welcome to Recipes of Yore. We're going to explore some unusual medical recipes from the past. The way in which the word recipes was used in the past is a bit different from how it's used today. So it could mean recipes for cooking, for medicine, or even recipes for cleaning products or cosmetics. Very few of them were treatments we would recognise in the 21st century, and certainly none of these should be tried at home. Tooth pain was the bane of a lot of people's lives in the 1500s and following centuries. As a result, early handwritten recipe books contained many treatments for tooth-related issues. These manuscript texts existed alongside a growing number of printed texts, and while the handwritten recipe books were usually compiled by women, the printed recipe books were usually written by men. The sources of the individual recipes in these books were sometimes recorded, for example, one might say, from Reverend Richardson, or prescribed by Dr. Johnson, but often it is impossible to know where they were taken from, and the same recipe will appear in many different books and notes. Many recipes for toothache contain common household ingredients. For example, in John Moncrief's The Poor Man's Physician, one recipe for toothache included pepper, nutmeg, brown sugar and brandy to be, quote, made up in pills and put into the hollow of the tooth, it will give ease. Other toothache treatments from the same book included vinegar put in the ear of the same side, the oil of bitter almonds, or the juice of garlic mixed with treacle dropped warm in the ear. A lot of tooth-related remedies involve putting things into the ears, including beetroot and the juice of ground ivy. Others from the poor man's physician included a nettle laid to the jaw, honey of roses, violet, and the white of an egg. That text also contains recipes to clean foul or dirty teeth. These basically involve rubbing the teeth with a variety of items, including earth snails, crumbs of bread, and pumice stones. For loose teeth, the treatment was to, quote, put a grain of salt in a spider's web, and put it in the hole of the tooth, and it will fasten the tooth. When teeth were broken and rotten beyond all hope of repair, the treatments got a little more unpleasant. These included raven dung and, quote, powder of goat's dung put upon the teeth makes for them to fall out. Even more alarming was the recipe to, quote, fill the hollow tooth with turpentine, burn the tooth with a red-hot iron. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at rcpeheritage and we have a Just Giving page, rcpeheritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.